Uh, today I have with me Stephanie Holbert. Uh, she's um, a developer, but also does a lot of work on the business side. Um, and I'd like to talk to her about open source and her experience with uh, networking, sales, um, a lot of things that I think a lot of open source developers don't have a lot of experience with, or even even almost like a willingness to learn. Um, so thanks for joining me today. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um before this, we were kind of chatting about business and stuff. And Henry, you were mentioning like you've been able to be really successful um, and are like hesitant to call it success because it's only been a few months or like less than a year. And it's kind of you're not really sure exactly like how you got there. And I, I was saying that um, I, you know, bits and pieces, but like to replicate it is hard. I was saying I noticed that in indie games as well because I'm in the game industry. Game uh, Indie game developers will often get like successes and they'll make a ton of money, but they won't really know how that happened. And it's worthwhile to try to like analyze it, learn business skills so that you don't, um, you can replicate what you're already doing right. Um, I, it's just funny. Like, I, you know, they have like, I think it was like indie game, the movie, um, I'm I'm actually pretty into game myself, and it, well, yeah, I guess interested in how people make games as a developer, like design wise too. Um, and it's interesting hearing their story. And I was like, I was just wondering, like, why don't we have um, documentaries on like open source maintainers? And it's like I feel like there's a missing thing where we talk about the impact of open source and like what it does, and you know, maybe stuff like Linux and stuff, but like. I feel like there's not a lot of talk on the people behind it or even like how, you know, the history and that kind of thing. That That's kind of like why I want to make this podcast about interviewing the people, not just like what they work on, but more of like how. And it's just like, what's it like? Because I feel like so many people use open source, but they don't. It's and they might hear about certain stories, but they, they don't know like what it's like to be a maintainer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think part of that is because indie devs are, uh, I don't know how to put this. I, I don't know the full answer, obviously, but I think indie devs are, it's recognized that they own their studios, that they make a living off of this, that it's their project. Oh, yeah. Um, whereas I wonder if that's as true in open source. That's a good point. Because um, I guess in the end, you're still selling a game. <laughs> Um, and you know, people can look up like, oh, the studio made it, and then um, yeah, you're paying for it. And with open source, it's it's not like a yeah, game. I guess a game is more like you know any other kind of content, like a movie, right? People know the directors or YouTube videos. They're like in your face, and you see them. Um, with open source, you don't you don't have to know anyone that works on it. And I guess I guess supposedly that's kind of like the whole point or the beauty of open source is that. You don't have to know who works on it, and I don't have to know who uses it, um, and you're freely able to do whatever. But from a sustainability point of view, it's like, um, I actually do need people to know that I'm working on it, because otherwise, why would they give me money, right? It's like the, I guess, more emotional side to it. It's like, if it's just some black box, um, or they, I think the problem is people then assume that you're either making money or that you work at a company and I don't think people care enough to look into it. Like, I think, I, I say this all the time, like, people think that I work at, like, Facebook. Well, not, maybe not as much anymore, but originally. Um, cause just because, you know, the, the creator of Battle works there now, Sebastian. Um, 
and maybe Facebook was the one like promoting usage of it. But in terms of like who's getting paid to work on this thing, um, people don't know, and you kind of feel like you feel like you're talking about it all the time, but then uh, you're probably not talking about it enough. It's so true, and I I feel like there's this there's this multiple kinds of cultures at play. There's the one where they think okay, a lot of people who maintain open source libraries already work at corporations or they don't see the benefit of not working at a large corporation and maintaining an open source library. They assume that like it's kind of the same kind of ethics and the same kind of philosophy towards open source. When in reality, it, your attention and focus and like the way you approach it does shift and it can be beneficial to make money outside of working a full-time job at a corporation. I think there's the other end of it where there's a culture around anyone could contribute to this. Uh, Whereas in indie dev, they're like, this is the creator's vision. Only they can make this game. And in a way, it's good not to go too far in that direction, but it's also good to value labor and to value the people who are creating the library and not just view people as completely replaceable. Yeah, I think I definitely um, struggle with that. It's like, I I think there's a, a good quality in making yourself replaceable, like even as a leader, right? You, you want people to feel empowered to make any change that seems good that you weren't thinking about but at the same time not every you know contributor cares about the same things as you and or even has spent that much time thinking about it like there's you can't say that like some random person that shows up in an open source project has the same say as a maintainer maybe i've been working on it for two years and there's a lot of people that come into issues they're like why didn't you do xyz um or why didn't you do it fast enough all these different questions and they didn't they weren't willing to like put in the time to think about or look at why. And it's kind of more like you know, the whole entitlement demand kind of thing. It also reminds me a lot of when I first started selling middleware in the game industry. So my background is right now, um, I do open source work that isn't completely open source yet. We're still standardizing it. And I also do um, proprietary products that I sell to try to fund this project. And in the future, I'll have more ways of funding and more ways of doing open source, but I can't talk about that quite yet. Um, But anyway, when we first started selling this product, we met a lot of similar resistance in industries that weren't used to buying middleware, like the game industry, industries that were used to making a lot of things themselves. They would say, we can just build this ourselves. We can just... um, you know, what your skill sets aren't that special. We can like, a lot of people can write image compressors, even though like, yes, in theory, but also 25 years of experience building image compressors is not like invaluable. (laughs) Um, And we get a lot of resistance of like, oh, well, if we just put an engineer on this for a year, we could just make the same thing. And that kind of mentality of being really replaceable. And I've noticed that that's not present in all industries. In some industries, they recognize the value of having a third party vendor make something, not just in technical specialty, but also in liability, in um, support, in basically like getting to utilize a specialized skill set and a specialized team that like doesn't fit in with your budget and schedules and can independently make sure something is healthy. It's really funny because that 
like I'm reminded of that now just doing like even doing this podcast. It's like, should I spend the time to learn how to edit it and all this stuff? Or should I just pay someone? It's like, am I willing to spend money on it um, for quality or all these trade-offs? And I think it's not that different with open source and, you know, trying to like normalize that behavior of paying for open source. And like what you said, um, you can pay an engineer to say, say by the project I work on Babel to make a whole version of Babel themselves. But there are a lot of other things like you could definitely do it because you have enough money to, but it's like, do people want to work on that? Um, are you going to maintain this thing for the foreseeable future? And, and you know, is your use case that specific that you need to make your own thing? Like, it's not as simple as just like, oh, let's just pay for it. And and also starting from scratch is a lot more, well, it's just kind of like, maybe it's just a little bit of arrogance where it's like, oh, we can make a whole new thing um, just because we have the talent and the money. And it's like, you could pay maintainers a lot less than a whole full-time salary anyway, and you would get a lot of benefit. Exactly. It's kind of like, you know, I bought a couch. I also took a woodworking class this summer. I could learn to build a couch. I absolutely could. If someone was like, no, you can't do it. I was like, no, I can study to build a couch. But but having something that's already built, that doesn't break, that has a warranty, it like I would rather just do that. It's, it's really interesting how people don't apply this attitude they have in so many other areas of their life to software. And I think that instead of blaming the other person and instead of saying, oh, it just sucks that this culture exists, we should take responsibility for that and be like, how are we impacting the way we're being treated? And how can we up our sales and marketing skills so that instead of just going, oh, woe is us, this sucks, at which culture would improve, how can, how can we say, okay, what are the marketing and sales skills that actually get me money and change this perception? Totally agreed. <laughs> <laughs> I faced that as well. Like in the beginning, I was like, God, you guys just don't appreciate this. And then I, um, I kind of learned like techniques to kind of sell the middleware nonetheless. And some people I just had to let go. Some people were just not going to change from their mentality. And I, and actually letting them go was, was one of the best sales tax tactics I could have done. Uh, I just finished this book called boundaries uh, by cloud and Townsend. Uh, I think you would actually really like it. It's uh, this book about setting healthy boundaries in all of relationships. And essentially, you define what you're okay with and what you're not. And one thing that we decided is there's a level of that, like we could build it anyway, that's just flat out disrespectful and we're not okay with. And setting that boundary of like, this is inappropriate to talk about is way more powerful and alluring than just um, saying like, hey, stop, stop doing that. Like we can build it. Let me explain myself. Sometimes it's better to just be like, that's inappropriate. You should know our value. Talk to me when you realize it. You know, there's different strategies to handle that. I, I guess, yeah, like personally and also in business, it's it, it kind of like the whole like, it's really hard for me to say no to things. That is exactly what this book covers. It's interesting because I started it because um, uh, of like personal life. And then I realized it like apply, completely applies to business. And the point is, if you know when, if you can say no well, they say that you will be a more loving and kind person. Yeah. 
It's funny because I, I, I guess it seems very unintuitive, but you know, I think there's a lot of assumptions in being able to say, obviously saying yes all the time means that you, you feel like you believe you have no limits, right? You, that, you know, whether it's time or, or effort and all these things. And I think, you know, in the end, to me, it just, it's ultimately just pride, right? It's like feeling like I'm capable of doing all these things when clearly it's not. And that's leading to all these issues of, you know, burnout and anxiety, which is what I do feel. So yeah, it causes several issues. And I can relate to this as well. It causes, um, it causes you to feel resentful of the other person, regardless of whether you want to or not. Like, uh, why are you putting this all on me? Like our previous conversation even reflects that like, oh, why are they treating us this way? Like we kind of like get angry or upset at people. It also causes us to put this attitude on others why and get upset when others say no to us and it's depleting and energy uh, energy draining so it's and according to this book it also makes us less compassionate people to everybody i find that i have it well i guess it's i guess personally i have a it's easier for me to just i guess i i'm too hard on myself and i kind of have high expectations in that way and i i understand the other person's point of view like more so i don't I guess I don't usually get angry like that, but, um, but it also means I put all the burden on myself and that's just, I mean, just as bad in a different way. Yeah. It's kind of like your anger is getting directed at yourself instead of the other person. And it's actually, it's interesting because the first step to setting healthy boundaries, you can't just immediately start saying no. The first step is allowing yourself to feel a little bit angry at the other person. Feels like a, definitely like a lifelong thing. (laughs) <laughs> I feel that I, I struggle with this as well. Um, like for instance, uh, I was in this negotiation a few months ago where I was basically, we were in this negotiation and we wanted to do a paid agreement and they, um, they basically wanted a lower cost or free option before they, uh, before they launched into the big agreement to like, get it through bureaucracy faster and stuff. And I was like, okay, I want to be paid for this. And they were like, no, we can't pay you yet. And I immediately got like on the defensive and angry. And I was like, and I responded with like, gosh, well, I guess we'll put a limit on like 60 days for how long this could last. And he responded with no, 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 we can make it 15 days. We just need to get past this like pumping bureaucracy like and I did not expect him to like be so generous with that because he could have just taken my 60 days I was kind of uh, painting the person as like a hostile person and that's not right and I if I if I had clear boundaries I would have been able to assume that he was generous and like just decide how I wanted to operate it's tricky but I I can relate is what I'm saying yeah I think some I've definitely heard of maintainers and I try to do this too with the whole, I mean, I don't like this phrase, but like killing them with kindness or whatever, but you know, like what you said, I think being charitable, which uh, is probably very important on any online communication, um, not just GitHub, but it's like when people make those issues that are so, you know, they're mad and all that. And, and I think that's the problem. Like being mad makes you feel like their entitlement makes me feel entitled um, and responding back compassionately, and then they respond back compassionately, maybe, right? 
And I think one of us has to do it. Otherwise, it's going to be the cycle of um, negativity, right? Well, it's interesting because I was talking to an open source maintainer the other day who was like ranting super angrily in this like semi-private chat. And I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and he was like, I'm sorry, I have to rant angrily here because I have to be like super polite in in these forums. And I, I was kind of thinking like, why can't you just be firm with the people? Like I'll respond to you in like two weeks instead of like constantly caving in. And he was expressing concern that like anything that wasn't caving in was going to be interpreted as being rude. And he didn't want like a scandal about rudeness in his community. And I think it's really important to note that being firm allows you to like not have that pent up aggression and be kinder overall. Yeah. I, I'm still learning that too. I think that's really good because I think people have this fear that, you know, if you say something sort of firm, I guess that people will like say something online, be like this maintainer did X, Y, Z, and they don't want that. So they want to be as nice as possible, but then people just treat you like that anyway. Right. Um, And I guess over time it just gets worse. And this is why I wanted, it's like the idea of maintaining maintainers talking to each other in just, I don't know, a hangout or even in person would be helpful as like a support group because I feel like most people don't talk to each other a lot of maybe on the same team they do, but like within, you know, open source itself, like, yeah, you give a talk about open source or podcast and then someone messaged me and they'll be like, oh, that was really helpful in the sense that I found someone that is feeling the same things as me and I feel better just because I heard a similar story. And it's like, why don't we should have those conversations more often? Um, not because not any of us knows what to do, but at least we can like understand that um, you're not the only one yeah, feeling that way. I also think open source would benefit from not thinking that its problems are unique to open source. You know, business people, especially B2C businesses, so business to consumer, they sell to lots of people, like a mass audience, like Nike is a B2C business. They deal a lot with the same exact problems. If they respond rudely um, on a customer support line, that could turn into a media scandal, you know, but they still... But somehow they their solution is not to cave into all the demands. Their solution is to set firm boundaries. And so learning how they do it instead of just cave into these demands and then venting in a support group would be so beneficial. Like taking that agency and res- like self-responsibility, I think would be really, really good. And I think it's one of those things where it's not true that it would happen anyway. If you're firm, you're going to get more people being initially angry at you. But hopefully in the long term, that will lead to a healthier community. Yeah, agreed. Maybe it's just like, you know, like the culture of open source and even just expectations that people have, which there are a lot of weird things that we have in this, where it's like, you know, we have this expectation that 100% of the people have to like what you do. And obviously that's impossible in any aspect of, or any discipline. And then this, I don't know, like maybe we carry the same expectations across different projects. And so, you know, if this project does this, then when you, cause you know, GitHub with GitHub, like each project, it looks the same, I guess, you know, like from the UI point of view. And so, um, even though people have like readmes and contributing code of conduct, those kinds of things, not everyone <laughs> reads them. And 
maybe it's like this and then adding that stuff then people get kind of frustrated because like oh you're now you're enforcing things but it's like no we have like i guess norms and just kind of that culture that's just unsaid and we need to figure out how to make it more i guess sustainable for the maintainer side of interview because i don't know why like we just feel like we have so much pressure and burden and you don't even like it's completely volunteer for most people um and and like the the guilt or whatever that you feel is like i i just tweeted this earlier but it's like self-imposed like i can um i guess legally or you know technically i can leave at any point but then there's like this social thing where i feel like i can't and it's important to note that it's not all self-imposed it is people making you feel guilty for leaving um Mm. like it hasn't happened yet but like you are smart you know it's gonna happen like you're not just guilty for no reason like for instance i don't feel guilty for not responding to customers right away but it's because i know that none of my customers are gonna get angry at me for not responding right away because I've set the right Mm. expectations. Um, But you know that if you don't answer a request right away, like there will be people getting angry. And that in many ways is, is your doing like you can, you can create this community. There is larger problems in open source. Like for instance, um, one unfortunate side of business is that to get money, you need leverage. Um, And I was talking to this well-known open source maintainer and he was on the cusp of getting some support agreements and feature agreements with this corporation. And he was really struggling. It was just not happening. They kept putting it off and off and off. And I asked Mm -hmm. him like, what's your leverage? Like he was like, gosh, I don't know. I was like, can you stop maintaining it for a while? Can you, can you not respond speedily to people? And he was like, Oh God, I can't do that. And I was like, if you're not willing to do that, making money is going to be very hard. So all of these problems tie into why it's hard to make money. That's <laughs> so funny. That's so real because like, even in my situation, I'm making enough to have a salary. And it's like, I don't, it's so weird. Like I don't have to, I guess I don't have to do any work because the work that I do doesn't, if you have the, the whole crowdfunding kind of thing, the way I'm doing it, right, is... And like the work that I do has nothing to do with making more money. Like if you're doing contracting, right, the more, you know, companies or features you're working on, the more money you get. But with mine, it's like if I fix a bug or add a feature, it doesn't directly translate to people don't anymore. The only way I'm going to get more money is by doing the networking and talking to companies. Um, and I think that's I guess it's bad and good. It's good in that tech, that means that I can literally do whatever I want that helps the project. Like if I want to make this podcast, I should feel free to do it. Uh, but for some reason, I still like have this my own view of um, not mentally, but like based on experience and habit of what I think a maintainer is or what they do. Uh, you know, like, I think the typical maintainer, you think of them as just someone that writes code, makes releases and triages issues. But it's like almost I don't want to do any of that anymore. But it doesn't mean I'm not contributing to the project. Right. Um you know, speaking or going to conferences, creating content, talking about open source and how we solve these problems. Those are all valuable things. But maybe it's because I don't see it that much and I don't know how to measure like success in the same way as like knowing I wrote some code and made some commits. It makes it hard for me to know if I'm doing the right thing. And uh, I, I maybe when I quit or 
said I was going to do open source full time, people expected a certain thing, even though I wanted something else. And it's hard to like change. Well, there's two angles to this. The first angle, like there's two purposes here. There's one, which is like what independent of money you're expected to do as an open source maintainer. And that's a, that's influenced by culture. That's influenced by all kinds of things. Then there is the second matter, which is what do you need to be doing to make more money? And it's a really common problem in business to not know the answer to that second question. It's really common in the B2C space because you don't get to interact with like all the people who buy Nike shoes, for instance, or whatever your B2C company is. You don't really know why they suddenly love the purple shoe. You're like, oh, oh God, okay, why do you like purple now? <laughs> and it can be hard to interpret. Um, or in B2C, I run into this where sometimes I get like influxes of uh, new customer requests. And I'm like, whoa, where did this come from? And I think that you're very, um, you're legitimately feeling pressure because I am sure that there are things that you could do that would make people stop wanting to donate to you or stop wanting to give you money. And it's worth analyzing why people are giving you money and what will make them stop so that you can release some of that pressure. Like it's not, it's not all on you to feel this pressure. Like you're feeling it for a very good reason. Like people might stop giving you money. It is not guaranteed. You can't just start doing nothing, but it's worth like actually analyzing that and defining it. In my case, I had this rule for many years where I would have at least three networking conversations a week. And that ended up, and after trying that for a few months and experimenting with what I did else, I realized that that networking was a good base for getting new inbound requests. Um, And so like experimenting and figuring out like, what is that key element that keeps the money flowing from a business angle is useful. Yeah, I guess another point is like, if, well, this is more for me, I guess, because I'm the only one doing this full time, but it's hard to get other people to want to work on that kind of work if all we know is the coding side, which is why I want to talk to you. And I'm glad that you're interested in this space because maybe there's this, there's this expectation in open source or like, it's like I'm doing the coding as long as I'm doing that, I'm just going to, this money's just going to magically show up. And I don't, obviously that doesn't work. Um, and I think it's, I was willing to just put in the work, I guess, to learn things that I'm not that interested in or am good at. But I know that that's going to lead to something different than what we're doing before. Um, and like what you said, like doing, experimenting with different things, um, assuming that it's, uh, it can be enjoyable. Like I think one way of networking can be through this podcast. Like I actually something that I want to learn more about anyway, and then sharing with people and then people will understand um, the kind of work that we want to do. Exactly. And like networking does not have people who, um, and I found this is especially true of engineers, people who aren't super experienced in business, but definitely engineers (laughs) tend to view business as one Mm -hmm. of two things. It's like they either, um, they either like think business is like cold sales pitches. Like, hi, I'm Henry. Give me money. 
<laughs> or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or it's like, um, or it's like, just like, there's a lot of very casual conversations that people understand might lead to getting a job. And I think there's not mm-hmm. as much of that middle ground where like you have a pitch and you have an ask, but you're not throwing it in people's face, but you're still like actively talking to lots of people and mentioning that. Like I want to see more of that middle ground um, with people doing business. And I think people lean toward the casual side because they're like, they see mm-hmm. that as more enjoyable. It's like making friends. Of course it is. Like business is not separate from making friends. But like thro- making sure to cultivate a pitch and throw in that ask is not out of place, even in a friendship context either. Right. I think I haven't really developed that part. Like It's kind of exactly what you said. At first, there's this, I don't know, I don't know, it's not really fear. It's just, you, you just don't want to be in that whole space because like money, you know, that, that thing. And then um, realizing, I mean, I like talking with people. And, you know, you get in a conversation. I don't even have to bring up money. It's like, well, I, it's kind of implied. Like I'm talking with them. They know that I don't work at a company and I work on Babel. Like what else is this going to be about other than like how we can help you and open source in general? And that's what I talk about. And so it doesn't have to come up explicitly like what you just said, like, hey, give me money. Um, just talking about our struggles, um, what, what they, what they need and just seeing what happens. And I think you mentioned in a video like you know, it doesn't, you don't, your goal isn't like getting money from them right now for that one meeting. It's just, you know, having a relationship, meeting people. And I think most people I meet are people that um, I already know online or they are friends or they can be friends. So it's just building that relationship. And I think it's even interesting, like the person, they might leave that company, but they go to a different company and they can still help me at the other place too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you cut out for a second when you were saying it doesn't. Were you saying it doesn't have to be about money? Oh, yeah. Like the intent. It, like it doesn't have to be like starting off the conversation. Like, all right, we're talking about money right now. It's just like we're just talking about open source because we all of us care about it. And then that might come up or something. Yeah, I think one thing worth noting is that you are unusually like naturally gifted at pitching yourself and not everybody has that skill. I've seen it firsthand. Like I've talked to like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in networking, thousands, (laughs) a lot of people in networking conversations. And you are like unusually good at describing what Babel is, why it's important. And it's important to note that not everyone's good at that. And so you kind of are naturally gifted at pitching, even though you don't realize it. And so so you can't give the advice of like, just talk about your product because actually pitching is a skill and not everybody is good. So it's worth like noting, like you might have to learn a bit about pitching. It's all about what we were talking about, about how to recreate success. Sometimes you do things like on accident or unintentionally that others need to know how to recreate. So that's the skill of pitching. And there's also like one thing I'm really passionate about is programming in general has this culture of like, it's either cold business or we're best buddies and friends in a family. Yes. And it's really important to have that middle ground. Like one um, example I like I ran into on Saturday is we were, I was at a book club. I do book clubs every Saturday and we, the topic got off of the book and people were kind of like, eh, let's keep it to the book. Like, let's keep that. That's why we're here. And they're not being cold. 
by doing that. They just like, we all have limited time and we don't, honestly, we don't want to be best friends with everybody. And that's okay. Like, you can still have a warm relationship with someone. Like I love hanging out with my book club members without being best friends with all of them. And I think that concept is really important to absorb. Dating is another good example. You might go out Mm -hmm. on a date and if you don't click romantically, like you may not keep in touch with the person. And it's not because you're an evil, cold person. It's just like you're looking for, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, it's it's important to think about business um, in terms of that middle ground of relationship. It's just it was just funny when you brought up like that I have a skill in it. I guess that's true. How would I even like? I'm just assuming that everyone's doing it, and I'm like, oh yeah, just talk to people. <laughs> it's it, pitching is a is a hard skill for some people, and it comes naturally to others. And um, it's useful to read up on what the components of a good pitch are if you're unsure which category you're in and, and improve that skill. I sucked at pitching when I started the business. I sucked at it. Like, <laughs> it was so bad. Like, I read my own slides and I'm like, no, Stephanie, stop. <laughs> so I have been through the pain of learning how to pitch well. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Yeah, because people ask me, like, where did you learn how to do sales? I was like, I definitely didn't learn that anywhere. Like, I'm just a programmer and I'm just figuring it out. Um, Part of me is like a lot of the reason why I um, got more interested in open source over time was at first I just wanted to be a contributor and code was cool. And I wanted to, you know, put my name on the top of the list and all that stuff. But I think that's where, like, why did I make that podcast about faith? It's like the part that attracted me more over time as I became a maintainer, which wasn't about like individual features or issues, but about the overall whole scope of what we're doing. Um, it reminded me more of the community aspect, which is something I'm very passionate about in like even my own church, that kind of thing. And I think being able to talk about what we do in a way that someone that isn't, you know, technical or isn't in your whole field is uh, important to me. And um, maybe that helps translate because maybe the people you talk to uh, don't know anything about your project or aren't, you know, versed in the language or the framework or any of that stuff. And trying to look like talk about something so high level is uh, is important. I, I think I talked to my friend and he was asking about like, what is it like? How would you know someone's uh, more senior? And being able to explain something in a simple way is actually instead of using all these fancy words and stuff like that can be a lot more helpful. Yeah. It's interesting how these business skills end up, can end up actually just being accessibility skills, like, like being able to communicate with a wide variety of people. Like if a business person who knows nothing about programming looks at your website and can understand what you do, a junior programmer will probably be able to understand it too. Um, one thing to note, though, like, it's really interesting that you brought up kind of like the um, the kind of meaning or purpose or like the good nature and community and open source, because that it is important to note that business and money does bias you and you can do it in bad ways. 
business is unlike programming. Well, programming honestly is like this too. You can write pretty freaking like unethical software, but it's not talked about as much. Like in business, it's more talked about in that you can do business in a bad way. You can also do business in a good way. And being aware of social impact and like how the impact of your business decisions are affecting others is critical. And I was dealing with this today. Someone wrote a comment on my post and they were like, by the way, all open source projects that take money are evil and like, all right. (laughs) 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 And and that's that's in many ways like saying all businesses are evil. And some, uh, if you believe that, if that's your ethical framework, I actually have respect for that. I get it. I wish we lived in a world without money too. Um, But think about it. Like, is your local pizza Mm -hmm. shop evil? Like, is, is like the mom and pop store near you evil? Like, no, of course not. Like not, there, there are shades of gray and not, you might think like, oh, money is just unethical for whatever reason, but at least acknowledge that there are good ways to do business. And sometimes you have to pull outside of the software realm to be reminded of that. I am saying this as a startup owner who is entrenched in Silicon Valley VC culture. And I'm like, oh God, I have to look outside software sometimes to remember where the good places are. No offense if you take VC funding and are listening to this. Yeah. And even the mom and pop shop thing, it's like, I don't think you would get mad at the pizza shop for wanting more money or wanting to expand their business. And so, and with open source, the... I guess the norm is that, or it feels like the norm is that open source should be free. And maybe that has to do with the name and the history, you know, about like it's free and then people think money. And so it shouldn't. But I think I've heard a lot of this before where if open source can, like you shouldn't get paid for open source, I guess it implies that there's no cost to making it, which obviously there is because people have to spend time working on it. And that's only, and people normally just think about the code, like how much it costs to write some code. But like, I almost feel like I should be paid as a maintainer to just like, even just the thinking and the mental, like, I guess, load that you have to take (laughs) to, I don't know, just put it all in your head. That is a lot of work, even if you didn't write anything, because you're thinking about where the, where's this project going? What's the vision? And for something that's more infrastructure based, like Babel, it's not just some component in your you know, library or your UI thing. It's literally shaping the whole language of JavaScript itself and every single dependency that relies on that and each of their dependencies. Like we, I mean, not that we have to, but I think it's part of how, we, how it works that we should care about how it affects the whole ecosystem. And simply saying, I want to pay someone because they wrote a commit is not... Uh, capturing, I guess, the value of what we're doing. And again, this is something that's talked about a lot, but it's often not talked about with putting the responsibility on yourself. So how can we put the responsibility on ourselves? Well, we can use leverage. We can show people that, like, if you told the pizza shop owners, I'm sorry, but we're not going to give you money. We want you to operate your pizza shop for free um, in your spare time and get a full-time job somewhere else (laughs) and make pizza and give it to me on the side. Like, the implications of that are obvious because we're very well aware that they need equipment and they need to hire chefs and all these things. We aren't aware of that leverage Mm. in open source. If we say, I'm not going to pay you, people keep maintaining it. And so we don't understand that. What 
But this gets into where business can get unethical. A lot of people don't want, like, you can abuse this. You can, at the drop of the hat, stop maintaining any, everything and to, in order to demonstrate this leverage that you have. I don't think you need to go to extremes, but I think it is worthwhile to consider leverage and to basically set healthy boundaries. It comes back to that. Like, it's kind of like setting healthy boundaries in a healthy relationship. If, if you have a friend who is like always asking you to hang out and getting upset when you don't want to hang out with them and they're just like very clingy, like very clingy, you could assert your power aggressively by like yelling at them or by like never wanting to hang out with them. But there's a middle ground of like maybe not hanging out with them on Sunday, maybe politely explaining why. Like I feel like we can hit that middle ground in open source. Yes, I I agree. Like, I think that gets into the whole, you know, when it's kind of like when you're independent um, or like weekends don't really feel like weekends. And like, you know, like on Sunday, everyone's like, oh, I don't want to go to work on because of Monday. But then when you're independent, you're like, well, every day is every either every day is a holiday or every day is a workday. And I feel like in open source, it feels like literally every minute you have to like do something. And learning to be okay with not working um, because the whole problem is that we feel like we have to do all this work stop just like simply stopping um you know maybe it's you know once a day, oh, once a week or you take like just being able to take vacation right it's like why do we feel like we can't take vacation like you're like it's funny um i i was like oh i don't want to do like devops because you have to be on call but then i realized like on source i'm always on call in a way and i'm like i just subjected myself to all that and not learning what you said about being able to set boundaries being able to um, take breaks uh, and not actually work it's interesting to think about it in terms of the clingy friend example because like what if that friend has all good intentions and you what a lot of open source maintainers do is they essentially keep hanging out with the clingy friend and the clingy friend isn't trying to be evil they genuinely think you're cool with hanging out with them all the time and you start to build up this resentment and be like this is so exhausting but you're not telling and then the clingy friend gets so used to it that when you tell them to stop they get really confused and because this is the first time you've expressed any sort of disappointment to them. So it's going to be like a harsh like break because you've set all these expectations with them. But at the end of the day, mm. you are damaging the relationship by caving into something that you don't want to do. And you're being a loving, compassionate person by saying, listen, these are my limits and I'm setting them because I don't want to become resentful for, of you. And another thing open source maintainers will do is they will ignore the clingy friend. And when the clingy friend finally gets through, they'll be like, oh, I'm sorry, I was just really busy. Like they'll tell a white lie like that. And that's essentially the equivalent of an open source maintainer, like getting a full-time job, drowning in that work, but keep what but like wanting to maintain the library too, and like not being honest about the fact that they are essentially using leverage. They're essentially saying, like, listen, if you give me money, I'll be able to quit my job. But there, there's like this passive aggressiveness that I see a lot of the time. I mean, it's similar to just mental health in general of not being okay with just being alone and thinking about the problems that you have and like just distracting yourself with other things um, and not asking yourself those hard questions 
of like why you're feeling this way. Um, and I think in Elden Source, yeah, you're right. It's not under like it's it's almost like it's inevitable if we look at how open source works of just increasing usage, which is increasing support and burden and help, and then you have limited time. Uh, there's some point where you're not going to be able to handle it anymore. And being, I guess, naive and thinking that it'll just work out is not effective. And like what you said, we should be more proactive to say, this is going to happen eventually, so I might as well um, start setting some limitations or boundaries right now um, so that it won't it won't blow up later, right? Exactly. And boundaries are always most compassionate if set early. And that's the problem is that if it's too late and you're deep in, you're deep in, you're deep in it, (laughs) then um, setting that boundary is going to cause anger and discomfort at first. But it's important to note that you're eroding the relationship by not doing it. And again, you can get extreme, like you can start becoming a very controlling person or a very aggressive or very unethical but there is a healthy balance to strike that actually allows you to be most uh, most compassionate. I highly recommend that everybody like look up Brene Brown. She's this researcher um, that talks specifically about shame and setting boundaries and leadership. And she talks about this at length and um, it actually really relates to open source. Oh, and then I guess another point on the people getting mad that people are trying to make money on open source Another aspect is um, who are the people working on open source now and what allows them to do it? And that means it's only people that are able to support themselves or are willing to spend their free time doing it. So um, being able to pay people for open source can open up the opportunity for a lot more people to get involved. Not that everyone has to get paid, but I, I think it's more it should be okay for people to get be paid. I don't think 100% of people need to be paid for every single thing they do in open source. It's just that we shouldn't be mad that people are trying to make money or are making money in open and source. And I, I think part of this transition is going to involve being very open and honest about, yes, money does bias people and there are unethical ways to do business. Yes, that is true. And while that's also true... Um, there, it also brings a lot of good. So instead of just like ignoring it or just looking at the bad, let's look at it from a balanced perspective of pros and cons and see whether it could genuinely help this project and how to go about it. Right. Exactly. That's, I think that's the discussion we want that we understand. We should acknowledge like what you said, that money can be used in wrong ways, but it, I mean, that's how the world works, I guess. And we are going to be able to do a lot more in the long run, but we kind of have to go through this, I guess, pain of figuring out how we're going to use it in the right ways. Yeah, like it's it's going to be very difficult, but it's worth working on. And I, I think, I mean, at least I want to work on it. It's amazing how how much of business, there are some things in business that only happen in groups. Like there are so some phenomena that only happen when groups of people that get together. But there are others that uh, feel very parallel to individual relationships. And in fact, if you can be healthy in business and do that compassionately, it will come back to benefit all aspects of your life. And if and likewise, if you are really good in your relationships, maybe you can think of applying some of that to business. It's kind of interesting how the two overlap. Yeah. I Even recently, I've been just enjoying reading about people that are interdisciplinary or just have 
different, I guess, hobbies in tech. It, it's funny that before I was like so attracted to tech and all the technical aspects. I'm like, oh, all this other stuff helps a lot, not more, but like it's just different. And I think we can learn a lot from various people. And like what you said about business and open source, but also like the thing I want to do on this podcast is also interview and just talk with people that are maintainers of anything, right? They don't even have to be an open source maintainer. They can maintain like, you know, a YouTube channel or a live stream. Um, They could be a gardener or a librarian, like all these, like, (laughs) I mean, at that sense, it's almost like everyone's a maintainer, but I think being able to learn from people that can steward rather uh, a community or a shared or public thing, I think can be valuable to us where, yeah, like you said, we feel like we're unique in our situation where we're not. Thanks for listening. Check out the website, maintainersanonymous.com, for transcripts of each episode. If you have any feedback, topic ideas, or guest suggestions, you can reach me on Twitter at left underscore pad.